This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Does a podcast production company do? Where is the industry headed? These are just a few of the questions that podcast founders and experts are answering in a new show from the Podcast Academy and DCP Entertainment. Podcast 360. Company founders and podcast experts will answer three questions about all things podcasting. They'll have just 60 seconds to answer. Join us on Podcast 360 with new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us at DCP Official for show news and updates. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Business of Sound. My name is David Segura, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Glassbox Media, and as always, the host for this podcast. Our goal is ultimately to provide you with actionable insights and information related to the world of podcasting that we hope will make you either a better podcaster host or executive in the industry. Join us every other Thursday as we bring insights and conduct exclusive interviews with some of the industry's leading voices. But before we get started, I'm going to ask you to smash the like button and also subscribe to give us a five-star rating so that you can stay up to date with all the news in the podcast industry. Today, we actually have a very special episode, um, and John Beal was kind enough to join us. So for background, he's an executive at Mopoc, an amazing production company that is not only involved with podcasting, but also TV as well. Additionally, one of the main things we're going to be here to talk, talk today about is his role as executive producer of LISC which is Long Island Serial Killer, an amazing podcast that Glassbox is also very thankful to play a small part in as well. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. And ultimately, we want to bring you all the information we can about the show. And we want to dive into the inspiration behind LISC, what lessons, uh, for example, John has taken away from it, and everything else. So with that in mind, uh, let's, kick, let's get started with the interview and let's kick it over to John. So, John, first of all, thank you a lot for being here. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. And I guess with that in mind, I'm sure a lot of folks in the audience, before we start diving into LISC and Mopoc in, in, in general, they're going to want to lo- know a little bit more about your background. I already know a lot of the tidbits, but I think it'll be fresh for the audience. So I wanted to turn it over to you to kind of uh, run us through kind of what you've done before and what led you to your current role. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, um, thanks again for having me. Um, I was in television production for a long time. I kind of came up in news at uh, ABC News for a long time. And then I was in uh, sort of in the news divisions at uh, MTV and VH1 News. And then I was at uh, uh, the E! Network in LA, all in production roles, running Mm -hmm. shows for them. And um, the further along I got, the more it became sort of a development role as well. Um, and actually my wife and I were moving back from the West coast, back to New York, uh, which we were excited about, but, um, I was looking for a role and, uh, I got reached out, a recruiter reached out to me for a role at, uh, audible. And, um, I, it was essentially developed their sort of short form original programming. Uh, they were launching back then it was called audible channels, I think. And then it morphed into a couple other things and now it's Audible Original. So I had a chance to work with a lot of great people there um, from the industry and uh, really sort of set the hook working in the audio space. Um, and then I was uh, had a role at YouTube from there. 
and um, really enjoyed working with creators, working in the digital space there. Um, had a small role in getting them at least open to the idea of working in the podcasting space. We had a space in um, LA called the YouTube space, <laughs> appropriately enough. Yeah. And um, so we had set aside some space there where uh, video content creators started to record their podcasts there, which is really exciting. Um, and along the way, I sort of uh, worked with different on-air personalities who also had podcast presences. Uh, Henry Zabrowski, we worked together on a TV show when he was launching last podcast on the left. You know, he was in episode 13 wow. or something. And he was like, oh, I got this thing. I thought, oh, it sounds great. And he and his buddies were really funny. And, you know, it's turned in this juggernaut. So they've always been good friends to us as well. But, um, but yeah, and then my wife and I were making a move to Austin um, in 20, late 2018, 2019, early 2019. And um, a colleague of mine was here in Austin and he worked for a production company here that was very much interested in kind of leaning into the podcast space, um, knowing right. that it was a big interest of the owner of the company as well as knowing that more and more the kind of podcast, the TV model is becoming was and is becoming more of a thing. Yeah. So um, I was able to kind of lay out a game plan for him in terms of what it might look like both to create original shows that we recorded on our own, as well as, uh, excuse me, uh, working with assets that we already had in house, which in fact we can get into more, but that was sort of the genesis of Lisk becoming a podcast. It's really cool. So tell me a little bit more about the company. Like we've always said the word Mopac as like a shorthand for it, but how do you guys think of yourselves and what's the overall kind of branding for the company as a whole? Well, we always say that we're like a, a, uh, we say victim or survivor uh, based yeah. narrative story wherein we're not interested in telling stories, true crime stories that are, kind of blood and guts, if you will, um, as much as like trying to understand the people who are on the other side of that equation, which are the family, the friends, the people who, um, you know, had to endure so much throughout, whether it's, you know, when Lisk, it was over a decade or another podcast we're working on occurred over the span of 20, 30 years, you know, and so we always like to consider ourselves compassionate storytellers um, and thorough, you know, we, and we like to tie it all together with hopefully <laughs> the least amount of our voices, meaning a lot of those times it's our narrator, Chris or Shannon, you know, hopefully not um, injecting themselves as much as letting people tell the story themselves. Sure. Yeah. And I guess let's dive into it because just for the audience's benefit out there, um, you guys are obviously being being modest, but right now one of the biggest smash hit true crime podcasts that exists out there is Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. And of course, you know, uh, with the recent capture of the alleged, I want to emphasize the word alleged killer. Very good, yeah. Um, good. <laughs> the show's really been blowing up and it's generating over 2 million, I guess, monthly downloads. is in the top 10 charts in both Apple and Spotify. And it's really been something, frankly, that a lot of people you know, from journalists to the general public, you know, they're relying on the podcast to get their information. So what was the genesis of this podcast and what was the original vision for 
why you all embarked on this journey for Long Island Serial Killer? Um, it's a good question. We had, on the TV side of the company, uh, captured a large number of assets um, in, turn, in the form of interviews, mm -hmm. um, probably close to four years ago now, where we had you know boots on the ground in Long Island, um, filming interviews with, like I said, friends and family, police, you know, political people, stuff like that. And um, the idea was that it was going to be turned into a series and due to a series of unfortunate circumstances or circumstances outside of our control, um, it didn't get made into a television series for like a, an ID or an A&E. And so we loved what we had, but um, the problem was, is, or the feedback we got rather was that since we didn't have a, a bow to tie it all together at the end with a, you know, being able to point the figure at someone we had run into kind of a roadblock there on the TV side. And we thought there really is no better, you know, forum for being able to tell a story and pose a lot of difficult questions than podcasting. So mm -hmm. starting in uh, kind of 20, well, I guess it was late 2019, um, we started to kind of go through all this material and were able to put together what ended up being season one of List. And ultimately, in the end, I think it was really effective because we were able to highlight the people, the victims, you know, who were uh, the Gilgo Four and others without necessarily needing to say, you know, here's the guy, if only because we're not, <laughs> we weren't. Suffolk County or the FBI, and they supposedly had no idea who it was either, although come come to learn with the arrest of Rex Heerman that maybe they had a little better idea than, than we thought all along. So mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I know this has been a long time coming. In other words, you guys have put in a lot of work into it before this arrest. What was that like, kind of like knowing that you're doing a great podcast, but also knowing that the case is unsolved? What was it like for the company, the creators, and even, you know, to the extent you can talk about that, your relationship with law enforcement? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, frustrating, you know, to say the <laughs> least. I think it was exciting um, to have a podcast come out that people responded to. I guess a little other color is that we released it on like March 15th of 2020. So right as COVID as we knew it was setting in, everybody stayed home and we thought, oh, this might be great. It turns out that through those first four or five months, everybody just wanted to know what the heck was happening with the world. And so our podcast sort of came out, you know, to a very modest reception. And then as people were home kind of figuring out their daily lives, it really took off for us over the course of that first year. And, yeah. you know, I think the both the upside and the downside is that we were able to make this podcast season one and tell these stories without having conclusions. So we were excited that we were able to get that out there, but we also faced the dilemma of everybody saying like, what's next? You know, what are we, what's, what's going on? And so really in reality, we faced a lot of questions from listeners saying, you know, what else can you tell us? And to be perfectly frank, like, there wasn't a ton other than, you know, we 
had some connections to law enforcement in the community, but they were very tight lipped. Um, you know, there was clearly, uh, what we think was a very purposeful road series of roadblocks set up by police, not just for us, but for the FBI through what we Mm -hmm. came to learn was, you know, essentially like that blue curtain in Suffolk County didn't want people peering behind it. Let me ask you this. And again, you know, I'm sure there's reasons for it, certainly way above my pay grade or, or level of expertise, but obviously in being involved with this podcast, like, I've learned a lot. It's probably mind blowing, but why do you think there wasn't a lot of cooperation? If you had to speculate between, let's say, like local police and the FBI, usually it's, you know, they they work pretty closely. Yeah. So everyone's trying to figure out, I guess, like maybe why this is a little different. Yeah, I mean, in theory, that should be a pretty open line of communication if you're really dedicated mm-hmm. to getting this thing solved. We uh, we always were under the impression that Suffolk County leadership, Suffolk County Police uh, Department leadership at the very highest levels had some sort of, I was going to say bone to pick. They, they had an interest in not having the FBI step in. And it comes, comes to be that uh, it has become very clear that the former uh, police chief, James Burke, didn't want the FBI sniffing around. Um, he didn't want people trying to solve the case. It's it's my belief, it's our belief that it was not because they were necessarily complicit in the crimes other than they didn't want people sniffing into their business because maybe they had other activities that they didn't want to come to light. So I think that was sort of the motivating factor, but it, it's staggering to think the amount of really like pettiness and mm-hmm. um, ego, you know, that really yeah. ultimately blocked this investigation because as we came to learn, you know, they, a number of the facets of the case that ultimately solved it had been in pocket at Suffolk County for a while in terms of a lead on a truck mm-hmm. that was seen, cell phone records you know, a lot of this stuff. So it's really, it's kind of mind blowing to think that it in the end boiled down to a hand, a small handful of people blocking it out of their own self-interest. Wow. Especially when people's lives are at stake, that's kind of crazy and unfortunate. Yeah. But, um, it's really crazy. Yeah. You know, these things do happen. These things do happen and like gives credence, I guess, some of the conspiracy theories that were out there. So that's interesting. Um, one thing I will ask too, I mean, one thing that makes your company pretty unique is that there is a very rich TV heritage. That is what the company has done as a foundation of it. But obviously now you're building out the podcast division. Do you think at this point now this is something that you want to revisit? So whereas before there wasn't a bow on it, whereas before a lot of, let's say, buyers out there weren't so sure about a case that was unsolved, still an alleged you know, you know, case right now, but nonetheless people feel pretty confident that there's more certainty around what happened. Is this something that your company will be exploring now for TV adaptation? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when the arrest was announced in mid-July, we knew we were sitting on, excuse me, a series of assets that very few people had. And Mm -hmm. knowing that we had probably arguably the best chunk of assets you could want that went from sort of the inception of the case, meaning these women disappearing up until virtually 
the time of the arrest, um, that made it very appealing to a lot of networks. And so um, we I, I can't get into it too much right now, but we are very close to finally putting that uh, TV deal together, which is super exciting as a whole for a company, as well as exciting to know that these people whose voices you've heard over a podcast, some form or another, will hopefully have life on your screen at home. You know, so it's very cool. It's amazing. And so in a funny way, too, it also comes together full circle, essentially. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's unique because in as the pipeline from podcast to TV show started kind of blowing up with some of the like uh, Dirty Johns and, you know, Dr. Death and ones like those, um, it was like it felt very much like you made a podcast to become a TV show versus we made a TV show to become a podcast, to become a TV show. So we uh, added a level of engineering that we did not intend to, but um, it, it appears that it will hopefully work out for us. I hear that. All right. So I want to ask you something that I feel at peace with, but I will go out in there and say it. True crime is a very special animal. There's um, incredibly important ethical and even legal considerations to always like, you know, manage as you're producing this type of content. But I will say more than one person in the media industry has told me before they feel a little bit conflicted when it comes to the commercialization of it. So in our case, you know, we are pairing certain advertisers against this content alongside you like Rocket Money and others. Um, they know what they're getting into and they're enthusiastic about it. Not necessarily about like the tragedies, of course, but you know, to, to clarify, like what they're very like clear about is that they want to be in, against something that's trending and that has demographics, which they value. In this case, the female demographic, which largely are the ones that are consuming true crime content. How do you, both as an executive and your company, um, kind of manage that conflict, if you will, between we're telling a great story and we need to like commercialize this versus we have some unique responsibilities to either the victims or you know, uh, just taste for lack of a better term. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. I, we, we talk about that internally here where we, you know, we know that this is not a, um, it's not a hobby for us, right? Like we, mm -hmm. we invested resources in making this podcast and, while it would be great to be able to bring content like this out and just say, enjoy it, um, we try to wrap our heads around uh, finding a balance within ourselves, knowing that if we can get this podcast out there and we can present sponsors, show sponsors, the rocket money is the better helps to the world and, and do it in a you know, in a way that feels palatable to the listener. We know that in the end, it will help fuel the pipeline that will allow us to keep pursuing other important stories. So for us, you know, it might be a little bit of uh, the legitimizing thing, but we also sure. feel strongly that without trying to integrate, you know, sponsors who are, you know, great enough to, to be part of this podcast, we, right. we think that it will only beget um, better things in the future. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. At the end of the day, too, there is a public you know, demand for this content. In other words, there's a need to know. 
um, even people that don't feel they're in immediate danger, like they want to be informed and it's going to be done well or it's not. So my personal opinion is that if great, you know, storytellers and journalists like you are handling it, there'll be great content, but it'll also be like managed the right way. So I'm a little bit biased, but definitely appreciate the work that you've done on Long Island Serial Killer. I think you guys just really nailed it and just really kind of just, just perfect storm. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I hope that, um, maybe this is me asking for a little, uh, uh, psychic space from listeners, you know, but it's like, um, I, I think that people understand more and more, you know, in the rough and tumble early days of, of podcasting, you could hear a show and not hear any advertisements, but I, I think the appetite for it is, as the industry grows that people know that this is, these are not just mom and pop shops. This is, you've got multi, multi-million dollar companies putting content out there. And, and so I think the kind of the palatability for that stuff is, is sort of budgeting in people's minds to hear those things. So at least I hope so. <laughs> I think so. Even like people that let's say like podcasts, but aren't immersed in a day to day like we are, they recognize that as production value increases, there's a cost to that. And so if it's not going to be covered through subscriptions, it's got to be covered through commercial advertisers, which we're obviously all very grateful for. Yeah. I just want to shout out to them for a second. For sure. Uh, you know, I guess one other question I had in mind, too, and I'm sure the audience is wondering, too, after this, you know, massive hit, I know that you're exploring a number of other projects. So I just wanted to kick it back over to you um, to the extent you're comfortable sharing. Are there any projects that are going to be released relatively soon that your company's excited about? Um, yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> we're kind of all hands on deck for LISC right now, making sure that we're finding meaningful content to put out to our listeners that hopefully furthers the discussion in a in a way that is impactful. And we're also working on our other next project that's coming out is a case. Uh, and I, I don't want to like not say too little, but not say too much in that it's a story about a, a camp uh, that had has very strong religious ties that had a scandal happen over a decade ago that was terrible um, and sort of surfaced the fact that it was all a surprise to them. Um, but it, uh, it turns out there's a lot more at play kind of behind the scenes in terms of what people knew and what people were honest about. So um, we've been on the road throughout. Prior to the arrest of uh, Rex Shearman, we were out on the road for some, you know, eight or ten months um, doing interviews, which we're really proud of that a lot of our interviews we do try to do in person um, as opposed to, you know, if it's a heavy topic, you don't want to sit down with someone for five hours over a Zoom call knowing that there's an element that, kind of robs some of it of its vitality. So, um, so yeah, so we'll have that project coming out hopefully in the next couple months, uh, two, you know, two, three months, if, if at all possible. It's exciting. Well, I certainly can't wait. And that, I mean that not just as a potential partner, but on top of that as well, uh, a listener, uh, you guys do great content. And so like literally hats off to you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and just so I say it, um, we couldn't, uh, keep things rolling without, the help of uh, Glassbox, and uh, it's it's just a bonus to have you guys be a a uh, sort of willing and 
compassionate and eager and very cool partner to have on all this stuff. So it's, it's makes it a lot uh, more fun because dealing with advertising is not always my personal, uh, you know, ball of uh, wax, mm-hmm. but uh, you guys have made it a really seamless experience. So we're super appreciative. Well, we definitely appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we hope to continue the relationship. And again, we really are uh, fanboys and fangirls here. I remember, for example, when we first started working together, my co-founder, Chris Whitman, his wife was super enthusiastic. She had already been like a longtime fan. So it is com- coming from a very sincere place. So that's great. Once, once I heard that, I knew that we that it was going to be a match made in heaven. So. <laughs> well, it's good to hear. Yeah. I'm glad she said that then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very cool. Well, John, you know, I appreciate your time. You know, I'm going to play a sad in a second, but just wanted to again, thank you for, you know, taking time off your busy schedule to come on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, we are uh, super excited about this uh, new development, both for the podcast and for the families of the victims. And um, we're just excited to continue rolling things forward and are uh, appreciative of your guys' help in helping make all that happen. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thanks. And as always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Business of Sound. The show is produced by Erica Miranda and Nick Kastner. Um, as always, new episodes are released every other Thursday. And we ask kindly that you consider leaving us a five-star review because it makes the show more discoverable and that much more fun to do, frankly. And apart from that, you know, feel free to follow us on your social media platform of choice, whether that's Instagram, LinkedIn, or elsewhere. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.